2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and 15. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Good morning and welcome to our worship service. We're grateful for your presence. We appreciate Raymond leading us in these beautiful songs today. If you're visiting, we want you to know that we do count you as an honored guest. We would love to have you come back and be with us at every opportunity that you have. We're very grateful to have visitors with us from week to week, and we trust that you will find your visit here uplifting, encouraging, and it is our desire to make you feel welcome. If you're looking for a church home, we do want you to consider the work here. We would be more than happy to have you join hands with us to serve the Lord in this community. And I know that the elders would be more than happy to sit down and talk to you about the many areas of service in this congregation. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 in our study today. Paul writes, The love of Christ constrains us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Let me ask you this question. Are you living for the Lord? Paul said that Christ died on our behalf, that we should no longer live for ourselves, but rather for him who died for us. That may be a tremendous challenge for all of us as we live in contemporary society. And yet that's the charge that has been given unto us, to live for him who died for us. Why should we live for the Lord? What is that all about? Let me first of all call your attention to the cross of Christ. As we think about the cross of Christ, I would submit unto you that behind the cross of Christ is the love of Christ. That's why Paul writes in verse 14, for the love of Christ constrains us or motivates us. And really what Paul is saying here, I believe, is that the motivating factor for service in the kingdom of God is the love of Christ. Now over and over again, the Bible talks about how much the Lord has loved us. For example, Jesus said in John chapter 15 at verse 13, Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life, for his friends. Jesus came and willingly gave himself for our sins. Jesus himself said, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give himself as a ransom for the many. Think about all of the verses in the Bible that talk about the love of God, the love of Christ. John 3.16, the golden text of the Bible. We find Jesus saying, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then also we remind ourselves of the words of Paul in Romans 5 at verse 8, where Paul said that God commended his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 4, 
Again, Paul said, But God, who is rich in mercy for the great love wherewith he has loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has made us alive together with Christ. And so the love of Christ was ultimately the motivating factor behind the cross, the love of God. Again, the motivating factor behind Jesus going to the cross on our behalf. Well, what did that entail? When we talk about the love of Christ, the cross of Christ, we're not talking about something that is some abstract thing that has been put forth in human words in the Bible. But in very vivid detail, we find the Bible speaks unto us about the cross of Christ. Let me just suggest, first of all, that in looking to verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we think about the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus literally paid the price for our redemption. Now the Bible says the love of Christ constrains us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died, all were dead. We were at one time said to be dead in sin. But through Jesus Christ, we have the hope of life. We have the hope of an abundant life here in Christ and, that all, and also life beyond this temporal veil of existence called eternal life. But what about the sacrifice of Jesus? Let me just sum it up in two ways. First of all, we think about the body of Christ. Peter said that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we being dead unto sin might live unto righteousness. You can read back in the narratives of the gospel provided by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you'll see the immense suffering that Jesus experienced in his own body for us. Jesus went to the cross. He suffered the humiliation, the ill treatment, the contempt and scorn of the cross because of us. In John 19, at verse 1, the Bible tells us that Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. His back openly lacerated by the scourge itself. The Bible tells us that they slapped the Son of God. They spat upon him. They mocked him and ridiculed him. They did this while he was in a human body. But then also we think about his blood, the blood of Christ. Think about what John said in Revelation 1 verse 5, unto him who loved us, again reminding us of the great love of Christ, the love of God, unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. Jesus redeemed us through the shedding of his blood. In Ephesians 1 verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And so the great sacrifice of Christ, but then also think about his substitution. What you and I need to understand is that Jesus took our place on the cross. We talk about motivating factors for service in the kingdom of God. I think that this is what was paramount in the mind of Paul. Paul could step back and in a very analytical way think about the cross and what Jesus endured on our behalf. And in light of all of all that Jesus experienced for us, that was motivation enough for him to serve the Lord. And so in verse 15, Paul said he died 
for all. Now the Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 2 at verse 9 that Jesus tasted death for every man. God, through Christ, willingly paid the price for every man. Jesus became our substitute. We talk about the vicarious suffering and death of, of Jesus. We were the ones who were dead in sin. We were the ones that rightfully so should have paid the penalty for sin. But listen to what Paul says in verse 21 of chapter 5. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What's Paul saying here? He's simply saying that Jesus took our place. He is the one that bore our sins, as Peter said, in his body on the tree. He was our substitute. He went to the cross in our place, in our stead, if you please. That's why Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, writing some eight centuries before Jesus came to earth, said that God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. On the sinless head of the Son of God, we find Jesus bearing our sins. And so the cross of Christ. But then there's a second thing I want you to see in our lesson text. And this is the consecration that we are to have to Christ. And now we're talking about a life in Christ. And really, there are only two options. You and I, we can either choose to live for Christ, live for the Savior, or we can live for self. Let's talk for a moment about those who choose to live for self. Now, those who choose to live for self ultimately are selfish. Look, if you would, at what Paul says again in verse 15. Jesus, he said, died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. That's the challenge. We're talking about the human family here. All of us, we are comprised of flesh and blood. And as members of the human family, there are certain things that, that we want. There are certain desires and, and, and things in life that, that appeal to us. And one of the things that appeals to us is living for self. In, in other words, it's all about us. It's about what we want and what we desire in life. What makes us happy? What gratifies us? What brings us immense pleasure? Well, Paul said that's not the way we're to live. Now, that may be the challenge that we face. That may be the temptation, but that's not how we're to live. And so Paul said that we are to no longer live for ourselves. Now, I said a moment ago that those who choose to live for self are selfish. And the reason is because it's all about them. If I choose to live for myself, then what I'm saying in effect, either verbally or non-verbally, is it's all about me. It's about what I want. It's about what I think is important. What makes me happy in life. I want you to just think for a moment about those who choose to live for self. Think about some of the things that you rob yourself of. First and foremost, you rob yourself of time. Time that could be spent in the kingdom of God. Did you know that you and I, we may be blessed to live some 70, 70 to 80 years of, of, of time here upon this earth? The psalmist in Psalm 90 at verse 10 talks about the days of our years being 
three score and ten, even four score years. In other words, we might live to be 70 or 80 years of age. But he said, it is soon cut off and we fly away. In other words, we die. And so in verse 12 of Psalm 90, he said, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to fear or to wisdom. And the idea is that we would use our time resourcefully or carefully. In Ephesians 5 verse 17, Paul talks about redeeming the time because the days are evil. James said, what is your life? It is even as a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You and I, we only have so much time here upon this earth. And so the question is, how are we going to use that time? Are we going to spend it on ourselves? I mean, are we going to use it to, to bring glory and gratification to ourselves? Is that what life is all about? Is that what makes us tick? Is that what makes us happy? Once you lose that time, you cannot recapture it. Once, once the day closes, that day is gone forever. And so if you and I, if we squander our time, it's gone forever. Let me also introduce this idea to you. If we choose to live for self, if we take the road of just being a, a selfish person, not only do we squander our time, but we end up squandering our talents. Whatever talents you possess, it's up to you to harness those and to use those in a productive way. Now sometimes we use our talents in the secular realm. Sometimes people use them on the athletic field. Sometimes they use them in the educational realm. But what about in the kingdom of God? Certainly there are some talents that you possess that you could use to the glory and good of God. Are you using those talents? Did you know that, that we are to be good stewards of the talents that we possess in this life? I think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20. He asked the question on one occasion, why do you stand here idle all day? Those who choose to live for self, literally waste their talents. There are a lot of people that have been blessed immeasurably in this life. Many of us today, we have certain talents that we possess. What good are talents if we never utilize them? If you and I have tremendous talents at our disposal, but we never use them, then what good is that? We've squandered them. We've wasted them in an unproductive fashion. And then also, I think about people who choose to live a selfish life. Think, for example, in the home. There are only 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week, 52 weeks in a year. Think about the time that you have with your children in the home. Now, there are a lot of people in our society today who are mothers and fathers, but they're anything but mothers and fathers in the biblical sense of the word in the home. They're selfish mothers and fathers. And because they're selfish, guess what? They're not rearing their children in the Lord. They're not rearing them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord as Paul instructs in Ephesians chapter 6 at verse 4. If you and I as parents, if we're selfish, 
What do we do? Well, we may come to Bible study on a regular basis, maybe not. We may come to worship services on Sunday morning, but maybe not on Sunday night, maybe not on Wednesday night, maybe we'll come this Wednesday night, maybe we won't come next Wednesday night. What's that saying to our children? You know what it's saying? It's saying that Bible study and worship are optional. They're not important. And then sometimes parents, when their children are grown, they wonder, wonder why my children aren't faithful to the Lord. wonder why they're not interested in the work of the church, in worshiping God. Let me tell you why. It began in the home. Sometimes selfish mothers and fathers say they would rather do something else on the Lord's Day or on Wednesday night. Well, what Jesus would have us to do is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then, what about just reaching out to the lost? Noah was said to have saved his own family members. You and I have tremendous opportunities at our disposal every day to reach out to those who are lost and dying in sin. A selfish person, somebody who's living for self, doesn't worry about the lost. Unconcerned about the Great Commission. And yet Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We have the opportunity, the responsibility, to teach those who are outside of Christ. It may be the case that if we don't seize the opportunities that are before us, they'll be gone forever. That's why it's imperative for us to use the opportunities before us in a productive way because ultimately, at some point in time, that window of opportunity will close. All right, what about living for the Savior? What does it mean to live for Jesus? Now, Paul said... That Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. That's option number two. Number one, you can live for self. Number two, you could choose to live for the Savior. Now, if you live for Jesus, guess what? Instead of being selfish, you're going to have to become selfless. Here's what Jesus said, and this is a prerequisite to becoming a disciple of Jesus. If any man come after me, let him, what? Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, one of the things you're going to have to do is become a selfless, not selfish, but selfless individual. Now, is that easy to do? No. Is it easy for me to get outside of what I want in favor of what the Lord wants? Well, of course not. That's why I have to spend time reading and studying and meditating on the Word of God, trying to develop the mind of Christ. That's why I need to spend time praying to the Lord, spending time with saints, that is, members of the church, because ultimately when you spend time with people who are of like precious faith, you begin to think like them and act like them. And so, what does it mean to live for the Savior? What's that all about? Well, first of all, it demands a life of faith. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, verse 17. When I choose to live a life of faith, that entails, first of all, submission. In other words, I'm going to do what the Lord said. 
You can't become a child of God. You can't even become a New Testament Christian without being submissive to his will. Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. So we have to be submissive. And then also we have to be willing to make some sacrifices. What are those sacrifices? It might be that we have to cut ties with certain friends or family members because they impede us from serving the Lord. Think about what Jesus said in Luke 14, verse 26, when he said, If any man come after me and hate not or love less father, mother, brother, sister, wife, or children, he can't be my disciple. What he's saying is he has to be preeminent. He has to be before all others. It may be that you and I had to make some tremendous sacrifices to serve the Lord. And so that's what's entailed in a life of faith. But not only are we to live for the Savior by faith, but we are to be the kind of people who bear fruit in our lives. Jesus said in John 15, verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. There are a lot of different things that tie into the fruit that we cultivate for the cause of Christ. In Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about bringing forth fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. We think about leading others to Christ the productivity of our Christian lives, trying to reach out to the lost and dying. But the idea is a life of fruitfulness. And then also a life of faithfulness. Faithfully serving the Lord each and every day. When I become a child of God, does that mean that I'm not going to have setbacks in life? No. Does it mean that I'm not going to, to face obstacles? course not. What about adverse circumstances? Doesn't mean that either. But it does mean that I'm in this thing until the very end. In James chapter 1 at verse 12, James said, blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. In other words, even though we face a number of obstacles, those inward trials and or inward temptations and outward trials, what we've got to do is focus on the Lord. Live faithfully for Him. Now Paul said we're not to live for ourselves, but rather for Him who died for us. And what Paul is saying here is this. In light of all that the Lord has done on our behalf, we ought to gratefully serve Him. It ought to be a labor of love. If somebody were to ask me, what would I like to see cultivated in the hearts and lives of those of us who claim to be people of God, it would be this. That we do not view Christianity as a burden to be born. As something that we just have to do. But rather, I would want to see in the hearts and lives of people this spirit of desire, of inward yearning, of thirsting to serve the Lord. In other words, we're, we're doing it because we want to do it, because it brings us joy and satisfaction and happiness. It's what makes life complete. Let me ask this. Does that typify your life? Here's what John said in 1 John 5 verse 3. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. Is it a joy for you to serve the Lord? 
Paul said, we're not to live for ourselves, but rather for him who died for us. You and I have to make decisions every day. The most important decision, are we going to live for self or shall we live for the Savior? The choice is yours. And let me just add this before we close. Just because you're a child of God does not mean that you can't slip back into your old way of life and live for self. It happens all too frequently. If you're living for self, here's what you need to do. If you're a child of God, you need to repent. You need to do what John said. If, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just repent. Make it right and begin serving the Lord. Now, if you're not a Christian, here's what you need to do. The Bible says, first of all, you have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24. And then you have to repent, turn from a life of sin, Luke 13, 3. Confess his name before others, Matthew 10, 32. And then be immersed in water for the remission, forgiveness of sins, Acts 2, 38. When you do that, the Lord will then add you to the church, Acts 2, 47. And here's the promise. If you live faithfully, God's going to bestow on you the crown of life. And so today we invite you to come as we stand and sing.